Right, now, so we're going to look at Psalms 1 and 2 in just a bit. But before we do that then, let's focus a bit on the book itself, the book of Psalms. It seems to me that in most churches I've been in, the times when we tend to preach through the book of Psalms, I mean, let's admit it, it's usually when there's a guest preacher, or it's an occasional, or it's a one-off, and someone just seems to pluck a psalm out, uh, and, then we, uh, and we're blessed by it, it's wonderful, but aren't you left thinking, well, you know, surely there's more than just approaching the book of Psalms that way, rather than filling gaps with psalms um, sermons or stuff like that. Now, many people enjoy reading the Psalms, uh, and they give great comfort. They lift us up. They cover the whole sweep of human emotions. To quote Martin Luther, he said this, uh, Everything that a pious heart can desire to ask in prayer, it finds here in the Psalms. Words to match it so aptly and sweetly that no man, no, nor all the men in the world, shall be able to devise forms of words so good and devout. Uh, that's quite high praise for the book of Psalms, isn't it? But whilst we might enjoy the book of Psalms, and they're full of wonderful, beautiful poetry, and they express emotions so beautifully, I think also that uh, a number of us, if we're being honest, find the book a little bit tricky. Let me give you some examples. You're reading along quite happily, and the psalmist talks about how God cares for him and protects him, and then suddenly out of the blue... He's crying out for the death of his enemies, and you're sort of like, well, I'm not quite in that place at the moment, right? Or perhaps, and maybe this is familiar to some of us, you, you've been asked to lead a, a service or something like that, or, you know, say something at a prayer meeting, and you think, oh, well, go to the book of Psalms, and you pull out a psalm, and you think, oh, this is great. Um, uh, and so here we go. In the Lord I take refuge. That's beautiful. Psalm 11. But then the psalm takes a nasty turn. Uh, and in the end, you decide you're just going to chop out a bit of the psalm because it talks about raining fiery coals and burning sulfur on the wicked. And that kind of would spoil the mood of the prayer. Is this familiar to some people? You sort of think, oh, so beautiful that first half, but I can't quite use it because it's not. I'll just chop that bit off. Yeah. I, th I think if we did that with any other book of the Bible, it'd be pretty suspect. And so we feel a bit, a bit guilty about it. I mean, a friend of mine uh, calls Psalm 3... Uh, the dentist's psalm, if you look at it, because he's saying the only person that's going to want to express Psalm 3 really is a dentist. Break the teeth of the wicked. You know, who else is going to pray that? So it seems to me that people are, are, are maybe a bit muddled and vague when we approach the book of Psalms and, and we think about how exactly to handle this ancient hymn book. And, and there it sits slap bang in the middle of our Bibles and it's huge. It takes up serious real estate, doesn't it? So you might be able to sideline and leave to the end of your list of books to really focus on something like you know, Obadiah, 21 verses. But the book of Psalms is 150 songs. And you can't just put it off and deal with it later after the easier books or more pertinent books because the New Testament quotes it more than any, any other book in the Bible. The New Testament's very keen that we should look at the book of Psalms. So if you will indulge me a slightly longer introduction, I mean, it's bank holiday tomorrow. Who wants to sleep anyway? Eh? Um, I thought it'd be useful to give you a few tips that have helped me enormously when reading this book, and, and I hope you'll get something out of it. Now, can I just say, before I get into that, that, by the way, this is not to say that you've been doing it wrong up until now. Okay, please don't hear me saying that. 
That would be very presumptuous of me. But I want to suggest that perhaps you can get even more out of these, these songs if you perhaps read them somewhat differently, just with a few other things going on in your mind. So what I've given you in that little handout is some very condensed notes to sum up what I've found to be the most helpful advice that I've come across for reading the Psalms. And actually, it's not reinventing the wheel. It's, this is going to be so obvious. It's almost uh, insulting to bring this to your attention. But I don't want to spend too long on this because I want to get stuck into Psalms 1 and 2 that we've just read. So I'm going to whiz you through this. And you've got that little sheet. And maybe you can, you can use that uh, in your own quiet time. Fold it up. It'll fit in your Bible just nicely. Yeah? It's only an A5 sheet of paper. Good. Now, I was talking to one of my sisters a little while back, not the one who resides amongst us. Uh, she suffers a lot with sickness. And she said to me, Andy, people keep telling me to read the Psalms. But they just don't seem to connect with my experience. I just don't feel that they express the way that I feel. I'm happier reading Job. <laughs> and that's a worrying sign, isn't it? Maybe I just, this is her words, maybe I just have a more Job personality than a David personality. Interesting observation. Now, I guess the way that most of us read the book of Psalms is probably quite a lot like the way that she does. And that is, we, we put ourselves in the psalm, right? We relate to and connect with the feelings that are being expressed. We use the poetry to express ourselves, so whether it's sorrow or fear or praise, we, we echo those sentiments to God through prayer as we, as we read the psalm. Now, that's something good about that. But in other words, what we're doing there is we are simply reading the psalms devotionally. We put ourselves in the psalm and apply it directly to us. And that might be helpful to you. But I want to suggest that's not the reason the book was given. That's not what it's there for, primarily. Of course, they may provide us with many helpful ways we can express ourselves to God. <laughs> but first of all, they are not supposed to be our words to God, but rather they are God's word to us. I know that sounds so obvious, doesn't it? Uh, unfortunately, I don't think we quite get it sometimes. They're not, first of all, supposed to be our words to God, but God's word to us. That's really important. So have a look at Colossians 3, 16 with me. It'll be up on the screen here. This is a key verse we'll, just, we'll work with for this. It's, it's very helpful. The Apostle Paul writes, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your heart to God. So look carefully at that verse. What does Paul want for the believers that he's writing to? And by implication, for us, what does he want for us? Paul wants the word of Christ to dwell in you richly. He wants the word of Christ to saturate your inner being. He wants you to be like Bunyan. Spurgeon described uh, John Bunyan as being, anywhere you prick him, he bleeds bibline. <laughs> it's a great expression, isn't it? The Bible's flowing through his veins. Now, how does Paul say that will happen? Look at it on the screen. As we teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and how are we going to go about doing that? As you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So in the light of what Paul is saying here, what are the psalms? 
They are nothing other than the word of Christ. Do you see that? They are not my words to him. They're his words for me. And that means I've got to do just as much work on trying to understand God's word to me in the Psalms as I would do in any other book of the Bible so that I can discover how this particular psalm I'm reading is the word of God that teaches me so that I can teach others, so that we can all teach each other, so that the word of Christ is dwelling richly in each one of us. So ironically then, there's no special secret technique. Reading the psalms just simply requires us to approach them in roughly the same way we approach any other book in the Bible. So let me take you through those four tools I've got on your sheet. Uh, I stuck them there. You can use them pretty much for any book of the Bible, to be honest, but they're particularly helpful in the book of Psalms. Number one, remember they're set in history. What is their setting in history? That's the first question to ask yourself when you read a psalm. Where do they fit in the Bible storyline as it sort of plays out? What's going on at the time when it's written? Now, you can't always figure that out with much detail. But quite often you can, and it is hugely helpful when you can. After all, context is very important to understanding anything that we read, isn't it? Now, the first clue that this is the right approach to reading the Psalms is that a good number of them actually spell this stuff out for us in the headings. So they're going to, a lot of them will just tell you who wrote them, and then you've pinpointed down, uh, you know, a particular period of time just by doing that. But some of them give a lot more. Have a look at Psalm 3, the dentist psalm. Let's just have a quick look at that one. The setting here is quite explicit, look. It's written by King David, and it's composed directly because of that episode in his life when he has to run away from his son, Absalom, in 2 Samuel 7, 15 to 19. You've got a specific passage to look at for when this song is written. So we know the author, we know the event, That's going to be very helpful working out what it is that he's saying to us. Second tool, they're collected and ordered with original readers. And I think about the original people that received these. Now, this is an interesting one with the book of Psalms. You have to remember that this this is a compilation of songs. And it was put together for readers who had just returned from exile in Babylon. So they've just come back to, to Jerusalem. How is this psalm and its position in the collection of these psalms relevant to that particular group of people? That's the question you need to ask yourself. So think about the original readers, not of the individual psalm itself, but of the compilation of the psalms. Why did they pick this one and put it in the songbook? That's a good question to ask. The Psalms themselves, you see, were written over a period of about a thousand years. You've got Psalms written by Moses in the collection. But after the return of the Jewish people from captivity, and you can read about that in in Ezra and Nehemiah, the, the people put down this collection. So this book was assembled at that point. uh, And the whole collection, the whole history of the Old Testament is behind them as they're putting these together. And an editor then sits down with all of Israel's greatest hits. Hundreds of singles, lots of albums will be in there as well. Composers like Solomon, rock stars like David, all of the the tracks that they've laid down. And then he shoves on some headphones, no doubt, 
and he makes the mother of all mixtapes. There's 150 tracks on this. And they're specifically for the people of his day. It's a mixtape. That's an interesting perspective on this, isn't it? The book of Psalms is a mixtape. Very interesting. I don't know if you've ever made a mixtape with someone. Or, or, you know, in, in today's speak, a playlist, I think, isn't it? I can't, I can't actually remember whether I ever did one for Sarah. Did I? No, I don't think so. But the idea is not that you just shove some of your favourites on a tape and send them off, but that you, 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 you carefully select each track. You think about the order that you're putting them on so that they communicate your feelings. They communicate something to someone. That's a skillful playlist. And so the editor here, it's the same thing going on. Under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, he's doing the same thing with the Psalms. So both the choice, the content, and the order in which they come has been specifically chosen for this people in mind. People who've just returned from exile. And we need to ask ourselves, why? Really good question to ask as you're reading a song. Why this one? Why here? So what's the book about? Well, let's think about that for a second. What, what is this whole book about? That'd be great before we start getting into it, wouldn't it? The Psalms then are a collection of 150 songs, and I hope most of you know they're arranged in five books. Did you know that? You'll find that as you're reading through. You think, oh, book. We never read that bit out when we do the reading, do we? At the beginning here, oh, book three. And we... But they're five books. You could think of them actually as five box sets. I don't think that's a bad way to think about it, or five albums, as it were, of the, of the Psalter. And with some work, I think it is actually possible to discern a melody that runs through them. That's probably for another time. It's quite, quite hard work. But critically, I just want you to get the big picture here. Psalms 1 and 2 belong together. And they are an introductory overture. They open the whole work, the whole of this collection, by posing and answering the great question. Who are the blessed? That's the question in the book of Psalms. Who are the blessed? Psalm 1, look, blessed is the man. He's going to answer it for you. And in fact, the whole collection closes with that same theme being picked up again, in Psalm 144, have a look, verse 15. So if you flip to the back of the collection, you will need a Bible, you know, for, <laughs> for a talk like this. So, so Psalm 144, blessed are the people of whom this is true. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. And after he said that and bookended the back end of the album, all he does then is just gives you praise, 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 finish. Because he's got to his great theme of who are the blessed. So who are the blessed? That's the question, foremost on the mind of the first readers of this collection. That's what this audience are thinking about. What does that mean? Well, having gone through the exile and having returned to ruined Jerusalem in all the rubble, they must have been questioning whether or not they were still really God's special people. The blessed. Are we still are we actually the blessed still? And I want to suggest this collection hangs together to address that very question for those readers. And it will bless us if we, if we read it understanding that. Thirdly, just briefly then, 
tool number three. Remember, all of them point to Jesus at the end of the day. They're all going to point you to Jesus. In Luke chapter 24, verse 44, 44 uh, Jesus says this, Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Got it? Jesus says that the Psalms are in him. He's in the Psalms. All of the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus. It all points in his direction. And our job is to ask, well, how, how's it doing that? How does this particular psalm do that? And so to do that, I suggest there's three good questions to ask. I think I put them on your sheet there. The first one, is there a prophetic element in the psalm? Is there perhaps an obvious reference to the expected Messiah? You'll get that all the way through. I mean, especially Psalm 2 that we just read. Second question, is there a problem in the psalm that's resolved by the coming of Jesus? Jesus comes and solves that problem in the psalm. That's a good question. Enemies, sin, hopelessness, the inability to enter into God's presence, to be acceptable in his sight. These are themes all through the book of Psalms, aren't they? Answered by Jesus. Is there a hope in the psalm? Third question. A hope that is fulfilled in Jesus. Victory promises that we're still waiting for are there any of those things and then just finally you need to remember that they are written to change us written to those people a long long time ago but written to change us today that's the conviction we have whenever we open the scriptures isn't it it's born out of 2 timothy 3 16 and 17 all scripture including the psalms is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's what we want as we read the Psalms. So we've established the Psalms are the word of God. They are scripture. And that means that whenever we read a Psalm, we've not done our job. We've not finished doing our job until we've figured out how they're supposed to change us. How does this change me? so that I'm trained, so that I'm equipped to be a man of God. And much, much more can be said about reading the Psalms, but I hope you find those to be some, some useful tools. And the question, of course, that now, now really confronts us as we open up the theme of the book of Psalms is actually, let's put it in our language today, where do we find real happiness? Where is real happiness? Joy, the kind of joy that keeps you buoyant, even in the storms. Where is that found? And the world's got lots of answers. In the pursuit of happiness, people run after all the obvious things, don't they? You know, wealth and beauty and success. But even the wisdom of the world, actually, in its sort of trite hallmark card fashion, seems to recognise that pursuing any of those things and thinking they will deliver is like a chasing after the wind. And so you can cite countless examples where that stuff didn't deliver. And instead, the world advocates for being content with who we are, to be content with what we have, or, or to put it another way, looking within ourselves. This is very odd. I've got, there's a quote up on the screen there from the American novelist Ramona Anderson. Look at how she sums it up. She says, people spend a lifetime searching for happiness looking for peace, they chase idle dreams, addictions, religion, even other people, hoping to fill the emptiness that plagues them. The irony is that the only place they ever needed to search was within. We talk about out of the frying pan into the fire. <laughs> yeah? 
Happiness within? Really? You've got to be joking. I mean, try spouting off that kind of nonsense to somebody who's, who's got chronic depression. <laughs> or try telling that to a, a depressed teenager that hates themselves, that's full of self-loathing. Just look within, love. And that's the trouble. It's when I look within, well, I hate myself even more. So look at that quote. I mean, this is the world's wisdom, isn't it? Ramona herself, look at it, bless her, has just proposed that we search within to find something that will fill the emptiness within. How do you fill emptiness with emptiness? It really is a wild goose chase without a goose, isn't it? The world doesn't have the answer to happiness. And neither do the false teachers in some churches that you'll go to who will tell you there's a gospel that claims that you can be financially rich, perfectly healthy and physically beautiful. Even if there was a gospel that claims those things for us here and now, which there isn't in the Bible, I've looked, it'd need to do more than that to provide true happiness. And the world even knows that. We've just said, haven't we? Those things don't deliver happiness. There's plenty of rich, healthy, beautiful, miserable people in the world. But from the first sentence then, it's really clear in Psalm 1, look, that God wants you to be really happy. I mean, that's essentially what the word blessed means. Blessed is the man. Literally, deeply happy and content and full of joy, actually, is the man. Psalms 1 and 2 go together, um, and they're, com they're combined to provide this introduction to the whole psalm's collection. So I suppose they are like that big opening number that you get when you go to see a musical, yeah? It's obviously the best piece of music that the guy writing it wrote, uh, and it's got a really memorable theme, and then he'll haunt you with it later, won't he? So as you're coming toward the end of the musical, the same theme gets lifted up through the songs, yeah? Sets the scene. This is the, this is the melody of motif throughout the work. Blessedness. And this is what the whole book of Psalms is actually about. How can you and I really enjoy a happy, a blessed life? What's the secret? Well, the first thing that Psalm 1 tells us is it's found in the word, not in the world. That's the f our first heading. It's found in the word, not in the world. Look at verse 1. Blessed is the man, or the woman, who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Uh, look at the contrast there. You've got two ways to live, right there in those verses. You know, that we live in a world where there are just so many voices trying to get our attention and trying to shape the way that we think. That's what these voices do. Your smartphone, your TV or radio, they're preaching worldview messages at you. You may not even realize it's happening, but it's happening every day. And the blessed or the happy man has made a choice, do you see? I mean, the, the picture we have here is he's, he's sort of like he's out walking one day and he hears the counsel of the wicked. But he, doesn't, he doesn't stop there. He didn't linger. He turns away from it. 
Because had he stopped, do you see the vortex he would have been sucked into here? Had he allowed the counsel of the wicked to permeate his thinking, it would have affected his behavior. He would soon have been standing in the way of sinners. Inevitably, it would have led to him sitting in the seat of mockers. You see this sort of progression in this verse? Because listening shapes our thinking. Thinking leads to action, which leads to speaking. His whole being would have been sucked in and every part of his life tainted and soiled by a worldview of wickedness. And that's what he's avoided. A wise person said, you sow a thought, you reap a deed. Sow a deed, you reap a habit. Sow a habit, you reap a character. Sow a character, you reap a destiny. It's true, isn't it? But he, the blessed man here, he's turned away from all of that. He was never seduced or sucked in by it. Instead, he's turned to the word of God, the law. God's requirements for us to be blessed. That's what the law is. And this, we're told, he's delighted in and meditated on day and night. He's got the word of God kind of percolating through his mind, affecting every word, every deed. It's just running through his veins. And how is he blessed? Look at verses 3 to 4. He is blessed with prosperity, not poverty. This, this here, by the way, is the real prosperity gospel, the real one. It's right here. Look at this second contrast, verse 3. He's like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They're like chaff that the wind blows away. This meditator then, this blessed man who's a meditator and a doer and uh, a proclaimer of the Lord, of the law, he's like a tree, says the psalmist. Can you picture it? It's a good tree, this tree. It's full of life and fruit and strength and permanency. He's prospering. The word of God leads to abundant life rather than a life full of death. That is real prosperity. Real prosperity is in contrast to the poverty of verse 4, look. Not so the wicked. So the man that did get sucked into the vortex of verse 1, yeah, he got sucked right into that worldview, and it permeates his uh, whole character. He's like chaff. You know what chaff is like? It's that stuff. The only time I've experienced this is when we were making coffee in Colombia. And I had the coffee beans, and you bang the, the beans, and the, the husks come off. Then you throw it up in the air and, let, and blow, and blow, try and blow away all the little husks from the beans. Same sort of principle. It's the worthless bit. It's the bit you want to get rid of. You beat out the kernels of grain, the outer husk floats away. Because it's not useful for anything, it's a waste product. It has absolutely no value. You throw it out, you let the wind take it. Do you see the contrast? Fruitful tree with lush green leaves and fruit, solid and planted there by the water. Or chaff, you know, a waste product thrown away and forgotten. It's quite a contrast, isn't it? The biggest contrast, though, is seen when the judgment comes. Because the judgment ultimately determines who's really the one who's poor and who's the one that's prosperous. Have a look at verses 5 and 6. 
Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So now we see what real spiritual poverty leads to. And in a nutshell, it's the inability to stand before God in the judgment. That's the poverty. It's the inability to enter into the assembly or the gathering of the righteous. You're going to be on the outside. Poverty is to be on the outside in the cold and in the dark. Real poverty is nothing other than to be condemned to hell. The place that Jesus describes himself using words like darkness, pain, torment, weeping, gnashing of teeth and agony is to be on the outside. That is poverty. See, the world we live in might be tempted to judge poverty and wealth by the things that we have and that we achieve here and now. But this psalm makes it crystal clear that what we have here and now is of little consequence, actually. What matters is whether you will stand in the judgment. And therefore, true blessing, true prosperity is held for us only to be revealed actually on the last day. The true prosperity will be revealed on the last day. Now, this is nothing new to us because Jesus taught exactly the same thing. If you look at Mark 8, verses 35 to 38, they'll be up on the screen. Jesus says, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone's ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. It's quite a perspective check, isn't it? Real prosperity is found in having your life saved for the new creation and having Jesus unashamed of us when he returns in his glory. So here's the big important question. Who is the blessed man of verse 1? Who is the man or woman who consistently meditates on, obeys and proclaims the law of God and can confidently assert that he is blessed? Who is that? Well, if we operate tool number two that we looked at earlier, how would those first readers have answered that question? Well, it's not us that have said We've just returned from 70 years of judgment because of our sin. And what's more, we've only been back a couple of minutes and we're already sinning again. Read Ezra and Nehemiah. Their track record proves that they, all of them, consistently, what they do is they get sucked back into the vortex of verse 1. The soonest opportunity. It's not them. And it's not us either, is it? Really. Let's be honest. Unless, of course, any of you here reckon you do consistently, continually delight in doing all that God commands. What are you doing tonight? Meditating on the law of the Lord? Who then? Well, when you get to the New Testament part of the Bible and you read the Gospels, it becomes abundantly clear that it could only be one person, the perfect, spotless, sinless Son of God. It has to be Jesus here. Jesus is the one who consistently fits the bill, and he's the only one. 
None of us, you see, none of us will be able to stand on that judgment day because we don't. We don't. The interesting thing is that Jesus, the only one who legitimately could stand on that judgment, didn't. He, the innocent one, was judged. Why? To what benefit? The answer's in Psalm 2. That's why they come together, you see. So have a look, just very briefly as we close at Psalm 2. I'd love to give it more time because it's a wonderful psalm. But this psalm is about the king that God promises to David. David's son, the great king, the king who would one day be born of his family line and bring peace and bring a reign that lasts forever. And it's a psalm that the New Testament, in at least two places, clearly applies to Jesus. This is Jesus right here, we know. So look quickly down the psalm with me, just really, really quickly. The psalmist conjures up an awe-inspiring picture that we, we should spend more time on. Verses 1 and, and 2, look. Against this king, the nations conspire... The rulers of the world reject him and they take a stand against him, like as if they want to rebel against him. But verse 3 tells us they don't want to rule over him and they're saying, let's break the chains, let's throw off his fetters. And God laughs, verse 4, at that. Because why? Because he has firmly, eternally established his king on his holy hill, verse 6. This king is the son of God. And all the nations have been given to him to rule over and to judge, verses 7 to 9. I mean, it's an awesome picture of power and authority of this king, God's king. The nations tremble when they get a true glimpse of his anger at their sin, at their rebellion. Those who thought they could mistreat him, conspire against him, plot against him, reject him. They're left quaking in their boots. But how should they respond? Look at verse 12. Kiss the son, lest he be angry with you and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Kiss the son. That's how to respond to him. And that's not some kind of you know, continental greeting like the French do, you know, peck on the cheek. That's just the equivalent of a respectful handshake, isn't it? That's not, that's not how we approach the son, this fearsome, awesome king. No, this is to rightly fall down at his feet, prostrate, like you would before a conquering emperor. The unworthy sinner should tremble before the majesty of God's ultimate king of kings. Before his burning gaze, all of mankind is undone. We need to fall down before him. But don't miss the punchline. The last line of the psalm. And this is really important. It's so beautiful, look. Blessed. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This fearsome one, you can actually take refuge in him. How might I be one of the blessed? Well, the answer is refuge, not religion. That's the answer. He invites us to become the blessed man of Psalm 1. To become it. Not because we deserve it, not because of what we've done. Come and be it, he says. How? What must we do? Well, stop living your way. Lay down your arms. Stop rebelling against God's king. Get on your knees, verse 12. Kiss the son. Or in the language of the New Testament, repent. Admit your poverty. 
the poverty of Psalm 1. The same poverty that Jesus spoke about when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. And come to God admitting that you are in the spiritual poverty trap. Inescapable. You're a sinner in need of rescue. And then take refuge in him. Trust him. That's what that means, isn't it? Because blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's the answer. Then you will be fruitful. Then all you do will prosper. Then you will be able to stand in the judgment and to enjoy the assembly of the righteous. It's all in him. That's Psalms 1 to 2. That brings you into the book of Psalms. It's nothing other, actually, when you boil it down, than the gospel that permeates through the whole of God's word. In short, blessed is the man or woman who reads God's word and in it discovers that actually blessed are all who take refuge in Jesus, God's king. Let's pray. Father, what an awesome king your son, our saviour, is. Perfect, holy, obedient, yet also this great, mighty, conquering king. Despite his perfection, despite his glory, he gave his perfect life so that we might take refuge in him and be saved in that day of judgment. So humble our proud hearts to bow before the glorious Son of God and give our all to him and help us to trust him completely. For we ask it in his most excellent name. Amen.